Good morning. Today we are back in the book of Revelation. Uh, as many of you know, those of you who've read this book, uh, the Apostle John uses imagery and uh, he uses some very strange imagery. In the passage that we're going to be looking at this morning, it talks about a star named Wormwood, uh, a talking eagle, an abyss full of smoke and locusts. But these locusts are really something. And we're going to take a look at those in just a moment. But before we do, let's pray. Father God, as we gather in our homes this morning, would you be our teacher? We want and we need to hear from you. Some of us are discouraged and having difficulty processing the circumstances that we're in. Others are delighted. Point being, God, we're all over the map. But one thing that we have in common together as we follow Jesus is we have your spirit in us who helps us understand your word. Would you apply your word in our lives the way each one of us needs that to happen this morning? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So, locusts. Uh, John describes a very different, very strange kind of locust in this passage. Uh, we have locusts who look like horses equipped for battle. Uh, they have heads with crowns of gold. They have faces like human faces. They have hair like a woman's hair. They have teeth like lion's teeth and scales like iron breastplates and wings that make noise like chariots and tails like scorpions with stingers and power to harm people for a period of five months. These are very interesting locusts. And you kind of wonder when you read stuff like this, what in the world is going on? What are we supposed to get out of this? This is bizarre material. And yet this stuff somehow made it into the Bible. Why? Well, we want to dive into what we're supposed to get out of this. And this morning, to start, we're going to talk about another hermeneutical principle. Is that exciting? Yeah, you bet it is. A people, a principle, excuse me, not a people, but a principle that helps us study and understand the Bible, be better students of God's Word. We've learned uh, several of these principles already. This morning, we're going to add one more to our, our tool, our bag of tools, so to speak. And uh, here is that principle. In order to understand what you are reading, and this is really true for any kind of literature, but especially true for the Bible, in order to understand what I'm reading, I have got to figure out what kind of literature it is. Is it history? Is it poetry? Is it didactic or teaching material? Is it wisdom literature? Is it prophetic uh, types of literature? Is it apocalyptic literature? And what this is called is this is called genre analysis. Sounds technical, doesn't it? But it's not really. Uh, truthfully, we do this every day, all day long, informally in our lives. You're watching TV. Let's say a hockey game is on. Yeah, we wish. Uh, one of the hockey players before the game is being interviewed and says, you know what, we're going to kill our opponents tonight. And uh, we wonder, do we take that literally or do we take that figuratively? Well, obviously, we take it figuratively because the genre of that comment is hockey talk. And hockey talk says all kinds of crazy things. But change scenes for a moment. Let's say you receive news that a terrorist group in the Middle East uh, is threatening to kill the prime minister of Israel. Now we've got a whole different kind of thing 
going on. Is that to be taken literally or is that to be taken figuratively? Well, probably literally because it's terrorist talk. And we know terrorist talk is different than hockey talk. Terrorists do kill people. The point is just this. There's a, such a thing as genre context. And that genre context matters. It makes a lot of difference how we interpret a passage of Scripture. The book of Revelation is apocalyptic literature. Uh, it's a specific genre. Apocalyptic is a Greek word that means unveiled. Uh, it's literature that is designed to send a message, a message that is at first veiled. Apocalyptic literature was written in John's day to give oppressed people, downtrodden people, persecuted people, hope. And uh, they would use all kinds of imagery in apocalyptic literature. Monsters, numbers, colors, stars, planets, animals, insects, you name it. All of which was to help deliver the message, hey, hey people, open your eyes. Uh, there's a cosmic battle going on, a spiritual warfare, not just in your little world, but everywhere, all around you. Don't you see it? A battle is raging between good and evil and God and the devil. And our struggle is part of this much bigger struggle. And God has a plan and purpose in all of it. And even though things look bleak now, perhaps, don't worry. What is more, don't give up. Don't be hopeless because justice, goodness, and righteousness are coming. The cause of God, his kingdom, his church, his redemptive plan is going to triumph someday. And uh, the book of Revelation is the only extended example of this kind of literature that we have in the New Testament. And consequently, when we read it, wow, it looks pretty strange. But understand, between 200 B.C., 200 years before Jesus, and 100 A.D., about 100 years after Jesus was here on the planet, uh, there were many examples of this kind of literature in Jewish writings. Uh, in fact, dozens of them. Books like First Enoch, Second and Third Baruch, Fourth uh, Ezra, the Apocalypse of Abraham, these types of things, all different letters and books of apocalyptic literature. And so to John's readers, this was not entirely foreign, not even entirely unusual material. They had seen, they had heard this kind of thing before. And they understood that John was seeking to communicate important spiritual truth to them and unveil what God was up to, what God was doing. And what is more, these images, most of them were very familiar Old Testament images from prophets, prophets in the Old Testament, prophets like Zechariah, Ezekiel, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, and so. Things like silence, things like sounding of trumpets, things like thunder and lightning and fire and smoke and blood and locusts and altars and golden censers and the abyss and scrolls that people would eat and take into their mouth and measuring rods. All of these are actually familiar images in apocalyptic literature, familiar images in the Old Testament visions of the prophets. And so John's New Testament visions are similar. They're highly vivid, they're imaginative, 
and they are symbolic. And John's readers understood this. Now, John's imagery and symbolism had meaning and significance for his immediate readers there in the first century, but also for all of us who would follow. Now, remember, John is writing to the seven churches in Asia Minor because Jesus is writing to the seven churches in Asia Minor. And uh, they were struggling churches, you recall. They were economically oppressed, some of them. Uh, Most of them were religiously persecuted. Some had lost their lives. Some had become martyrs, in other words. And John, of course, is a pastor. Uh, John wants to write to these churches, these churches with people in them that he loves, and he wants to challenge them. He wants to encourage them and strengthen them and give them a bigger, broader perspective than just their own immediate difficulty, right? He wants to help them live through and overcome their situation. So with this context, let's dive in. We're going to be looking at Revelation chapter 8 and chapter 9 together. Uh, A few weeks back, we looked at the the seven seals that were being broken open on the scroll. And the scroll could not be opened, you recall, until the lamb was revealed. And the lamb was the only one worthy to open the scroll. And the scroll was symbolic for God's working, God's plan here on earth. And uh, these seals, as they are broken open, release the judgment and the plan of God for the earth the fallen sinful earth. And God's plan is to punish all the sin, the violence, the idolatry, the people who are persecuting his church and thwarting the coming of his kingdom. And so six of the seven seals have now been broken open. And then we read these remarkable words starting in chapter eight, starting at verse one. It says that when he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God and to them were given seven trumpets. And another angel who had a golden censer came and stood at the altar and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense together with the prayers of the saints went up before God from the angel's hand. And then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar and hurled it on the earth. And there came peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning and an earthquake. Well, (laughs) this is interesting. The seventh seal actually brings silence. Uh, The silence here is something that we see multiple times in the Old Testament. In the book of Habakkuk, chapter 2, Zechariah 2, Zephaniah 1, in all these places, silence happens just before God's judgment is poured out. And that's exactly what's going on here. Silence means judgment is coming. As the seven trumpets are sounded, there are similar but different judgments from the seals occur on earth. God's punishment of sin continues. Something else we see is the church is is in the middle of all of this. The church is not exempt from it. The church is in the middle of it. The church is being attacked. It's experiencing hardship, persecution. Some in the church are dying. They're becoming martyrs. And so the church is praying. Uh, It's praying for relief. It's praying for protection. It's praying for deliverance. It's praying for justice. It's praying that Jesus would come and end all of this. Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. One of the things I want us to see here is that history belongs to people who pray. It doesn't belong to Rome. 
It doesn't belong to the rich or to the powerful here on earth. History belongs to those who believe God and pray the future into being. Thy will be done, Lord. Those who overcome, pray. Uh, even if the, in the worst case, uh, you know, they, they lose their lives, they still overcome. And they overcome through prayer. It's interesting, the importance of prayer. One of Jesus' uh, activities in the throne room as he is seated next to the Father there in heaven is praying. Jesus prays for us. He prays for the church. Jesus intercedes for us right now in this moment, even as we study together. Paul tells us in Romans that it was Jesus who died for us, was raised to life for us, is sitting at the place of highest honor next to the heavenly father and is interceding for us now. Romans 8, Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. This is what Jesus did and does and will continue to do. Jesus' earthly teaching ministry lasted for about three years, had powerful implications, brought incredible change, brought truth into a dark world. But his interceding ministry has gone on, understand, for millennia, right? And the picture of the church in the book of Revelation is one of prayer and one of witness in a hostile world. Praying, God, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Proclaiming the truth, the good news about Jesus Christ, even in a world that opposes it, in a world that persecutes it. You know, in other words, the church is in a spiritual battle. It was then, it is now. It's going to be in the future. Now, we North American Christians, we tend to forget this. Because we mostly have a government that has left us alone or at sometimes even promoted the Christian faith. Uh, but that, you understand, is rather unique in the history of the church. What we see here in Revelation 8 is the, the church that is smack dab in the middle of all that is happening on earth. And a lot of what ha is happening on earth is evil, you understand. And the church is praying in the midst of that evil. And their prayers are part of what brings about God's will being done on earth as it is in heaven. And the point is this, prayer, along with the truthful proclamation of the gospel, these are the two primary tools we have to bring about, to usher in the will of God being done on earth as it is in heaven. This is a big deal, friends. I want us to see this and to embrace this and to understand this. This is a big deal. The truth is, we don't know how many people have come to know Jesus through the centuries. We don't know how many have repented of sin. We don't know how many uh, tragic sins and mistakes have been avoided or how much grace has been poured out or how much evil has been overcome and thwarted because of the prayers of the church. We don't know, but we do know this. We know that the future and outcomes belong to people who pray in the will of God. And so people who follow Jesus, many of these people actually martyred people. What do they pray? Well, actually, we already saw this. Earlier on, when we were back in the book of Revelation chapter 6, we saw the prayers that the, the people in the church pray who've gone to be with the Lord. This is what they pray. How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? How long? And here their prayers are answered. Judgment begins. 
uh, with the trumpets, similar cycles of judgments begin, similar to the seals that we looked at earlier. When we looked at the seals, we discovered that one-fourth of the earth was uh, uh, affected by the opening of these seals, by the implementation of God's judgment. Only now the judgments that we're looking at get even greater. It's one-third. It's one-third of the earth, one-third of the trees, one-third of the grass, one-third of the seas, one-third of the creatures in the sea, one-third of the ships, one-third of the fresh water. The trumpets, in other words, bring greater judgment than the seals. All of this happens in part because of prayer. I want us to see that. Uh, The message that I don't want us to miss uh, is this, and that is that prayer matters. You see, here's the thing. All the cliches are true. They really are true. Prayer changes things. Prayer ushers in God's kingdom. Prayer ushers in God's judgment. Prayer hastens the return of Jesus to earth to sum up all things. All of those cliches are true. And so therefore, prayer is one of the jobs, one of the joys, it should be, of a Jesus follower. Prayers for people's salvation. Prayers for God's mercy. Prayers for God's justice to be done on earth as it is in heaven. Prayers for the judgment of evil. Prayers for disease and plagues and famines. All that stuff to end. End it, God. Prayers for Jesus' return. These prayers that the church prays cause things to happen. Why? Well, here, here's, this is a wonder, but why? Well, because God listens to the prayers of his people. What a privilege to pray. What an honor to pray. What, a, what an incredible place of power to pray. So the obvious question, are we praying? Are we? Who are we praying for? What are we praying for? How often are we taking advantage of the privilege that we have to pray? Do our prayers look anything you know, like the will of God or are our prayers mostly to bring into effect our will? How do we pray? We're gonna come back to some of those questions in a moment. Uh, right now, what I want us to notice is what happens as a result of the church's prayers. And we're gonna look at a passage together here. Uh, this is Romans chapter eight, starting at verse six. It says, then... This is after the prayers of the church. Then the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to sound them. The first angel sounded his trumpet and there came hail and fire mixed with blood and it was hurled down upon the earth. A third of the earth was burned up. A third of the trees were burned up and all the green grass was burned up. The second angel sounded his trumpet and something like a huge mountain all ablaze was thrown into the sea and a third of the sea turned into blood and a third of the living creatures in the sea died and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel sounded his trumpet and a great star blazing like a torch fell from the sky on the third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star was Wormwood. A third of the waters turned bitter and many people died from the waters that had become bitter. The fourth angel sounded his trumpet and a third of the sun was struck and a third of the moon and a third of the stars so that a third of them turned dark. 
A third of the day was without light and also a third of the night. As I watched, I heard an eagle who was flying in midair call out in a loud voice, woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the trumpet blast about to be sounded by the other three remaining angels. Things start happening as a result of the prayers of God's people. Disruptive things. God is moving. God is affecting, working his plan. God is judging. Notice I said earlier too that the the fraction one-third keeps getting repeated over and over and over in the uh, blowing of these trumpets. What's the significance of that? Well, uh, first of all, one of the significance is that these judgments, these devastations, they are limited. They are limited. By who? By God. Uh, in the same, it's the same idea that we had in the seals earlier on, uh, back in chapter 6, verse 8. Uh, only there it was one-fourth of the, of the earth's population. One-fourth of the people uh, were actually killed through the, in the opening of the seals. Well, here with the trumpets, it's a third. The idea is that the judgments are increasing. Uh, But still, there are limits. God places limits around this destruction. He sets boundaries around it. And if he didn't, the consequences of sin and fallenness would just literally destroy the entire earth. And what we're actually seeing here is a picture of God's mercy. It doesn't sound like it, but if you dig into it, that's actually what we're seeing. These images tell us that something has gone horribly wrong, is going horribly wrong on earth. Uh, And the earth is affected in the first trumpet. The sea is affected in the second trumpet. Uh, The fresh waters and rivers are affected in the third trumpet. And the sun and the stars are affected in the fourth. And what this is, is this is a picture of all of creation suffering under sin and evil. The curse. Paul said this, uh, Paul said that against its will, everything on earth has, uh, was subjected to God's curse. All creation antici- anticipates the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. John is saying something similar, only he's saying it in pictures. He's also saying more judgments are coming. This is a theme. Judgments against all the powers and all the people who oppose God, his kingdom, his purpose, his plan to redeem. Uh, I don't know if you noticed this or not, but many of these plagues that are mentioned here in uh, Revelation chapter 8 are very similar plagues to the plagues that we see back in Exodus. Now you have hail and fire mixed with blood. You have water turning into blood. You have locusts that are going to show up here. And uh, John's visions, the point is, John's visions are born out of earlier judgments of God. These visions are intentionally similar. Uh, His visions are expressing the idea that just as Egypt, a nation who oppressed the people of God, just as Egypt was judged, so also will Rome, who is opposing and oppressing the people of God. Rome as well will be judged. Uh, And for that matter, not just Rome, uh, but any people, any government, any power that opposes God's work will be judged now in this fallen world and judged finally and fully in the end. These are the themes, the messages of John's visions in chapters 8 and 9. The first four trumpets directly affect the earth. 
One third of the trees, the grass, the sea and the sea creatures, ships, fresh water and light. People are devastated. Many people die, but it's not over. Things actually get worse. And now we run into a talking eagle, an eagle that's flying around in midair. Midair, by the way, is apocalyptic language as well. Anytime something is announced from midair, it's actually almost always an announcement of judgment. And so this eagle is flying in midair and announces, whoa, whoa, whoa. And anytime you get a whoa, whoa, whoa in the Bible, you better watch out. What the eagle is saying is you think the stuff that's happened already was bad. Well, you, you just watch what's about to unfold now. And in trumpet number five, a star. Understand, this is actually a demon. A star, a demon, releases a horde of locusts from the abyss. And this demon is given the key to the abyss. Doesn't have the key, is given the key. Given the key by who? Well, by God, by Jesus. Uh, and uh, releases these, these locusts from the abyss. And locusts go to work punishing and torturing unbelievers, everybody who's not sealed and protected by God. And this goes on for five months. Again, point of that, it's limited. God is limiting the destruction, the evil. Uh, And things are so bad, this is what we read in Revelation 9, 6. During those days, men will seek death, but will not find it. They will long to die, but death will elude them. Some have interpreted this to mean that men can't die. That can't be true because in the other judgments that we've just read, we got people dying left and right. So that's not the point. Uh, it's really more of an idiom, more of a saying. The idea here is that, that uh, while people are dying, things are so miserable on the earth. I mean, death actually looks good to these people. You know, it might be better for me to be dead than to have to endure these hardships, these trials, these difficulties. But understand, these are people who are afraid of death. Death holds no comfort for them. Uh, They have no hope for life beyond death. And so while on the one hand, boy, death looks good, but no death is too frightening. It eludes them. They can't go there. They want to die, but they don't. Uh, Trumpet number six has sounded. More fallen angels, four to be exact, are released. That's a key word. They are released to bring judgment. And they do so with an army that's described as being too great to number. An army you can't count. That's literally uh, in the the Greek language, it says twice 10,000 times 10,000. And if you do the math, that would be 2 million. So some versions actually say 2 millions, but they're missing the point. It's actually an idiom for saying this army is so big, you can't number it. This is a huge army, an unprecedented army. And the soldiers that are riding horses, these horses have heads like lions and they are breathing fire and smoke and sulfur or brimstone and their tails are like the head of serpents. And the point being, this army is unstoppable. This army is like nothing you have ever seen before. It's unbeatable. It's undefeatable. They are a horrifying enemy. That's what's coming. Now, there's a big point here. I don't want us to miss. And that is, do you notice here that God is using the forces of evil to judge evil itself? Do you notice that? He's letting these demons unleash these horrors on unbelievers. He's using evil to punish evil itself. And in this way, God's judgment comes with with power and truth and terrible, horrifying finality. And I want to be real clear about 
why this happens. Why this judgment? Well, first, because God himself, of course, is holy. He is righteous. He is good. And he hates sin and corruption and death. He hates what sin does to people and families and societies and governments and churches. He did not create the world to be infested with sin and evil. And a day came when he did something about the problem of evil. He sent his son, Jesus, to die on a cross to pay for the sin and the evil that's in us. His church, his children. And a day is coming when the sin and the evil of those who do not follow him will be punished once and for all. And that's the day of the Lord. That's the final day of judgment. And all of these successive judgments that we're looking at are just things unfolding with a view, with an eye towards the end. Make no mistake. While evil is being punished now in this world, in that time, and in ours, there's going to come a day when all evil is punished once and for all. Now, uh, there's evil happening in our day, is there not? Uh, what do you think this virus is that we're all processing? It's evil being used against evil. Uh, it's evil affecting all of us, just as God said it would. He, he warned in the... Very, very beginning, the, the book of Genesis, uh, it, it says that the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. What a blessing that is, right? To act like God only in his creation, to mirror uh, who he is and what he does. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Understand that dying is evil. It's the embodiment of evil coming into the world. And of course they did exactly what God told them not to do. And of course we still do the same thing today, exactly what God tells us not to do. But understand God does not intend to let sin and evil pollute creation and his people forever. It will be judged. That day is coming, the day when it will be judged completely. Now, there's another reason that God sends judgment on earth, uh, and that is to bring people to a place of repentance. This is Second Peter you know, 3, 9. God is not really willing that any should perish. He's not also slow in keeping his promises. He's just being patient, allowing people to, to process the difficulty, the evil, the brokenness in their life, the brokenness all around them, and come to a place of repentance. And sometimes pain and suffering are the only ways to get someone's attention. But often, even then, we don't listen. It amazes John here in our text that people can have a close brush with death. Uh, they can go through enormous amounts of pain. They, they see how temporary and fleeting life actually is. They even want to die, it said. And they experience suffering and difficulty they can't fix. Uh, they can't prevent. They can't stop. And you would think they would turn to God. You would think they would say, you know what? I'm not prepared for this. I need to change my priorities and alter my direction. I need someone to save me from all of this. But instead, they continue to deny God. 
and they continue to choose to live in their sin and their brokenness, regardless of the pain and the suffering it causes, as amazing as that might seem. And friends, I would just note that the the truth about us, the truth about the human race is we can endure massive amounts of pain and suffering. We can live in massive amounts of denial and obstinance and rebellion toward God and refuse to acknowledge who we are, fallen, sinful, broken, evil people, and who God is. And when we see who we are and who God is, that leads to repentance. If we really see who we are and who God is, that leads to repentance. And, um, you know, I'm using a word here, the word we, and I'm using it deliberately because while John focuses in this text on the unbelieving world's lack of repentance, I mean, he says there in verse 21, uh, chapter nine, he says, the rest of mankind that were not killed by these plagues still did not repent of the work of their hands. They did not stop worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, idols that cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders, their magic arts or their sexual immorality or their thefts. See, these people don't turn to God in spite of wanting to die, in spite of things being so bad, they don't turn to God. And the truth is, we who follow Jesus are also slow to wake up and repent of our sins, are we not? Even when we know Jesus. You see, the church goes through all of these plagues, all of these things, just like the unbelievers do. And we are not exempt from the effects of sin and the effects of evil, both out there and in here. And so while we understand God wants to judge sin and bring unbelievers to repentance, we also need to see that these plagues, these trials, these hardships through which we travel also, they are meant to work on the church, work on and in us. They are meant to perfect us, to take us to deeper places of maturity and faith and trust and love of Jesus. Just as You know, the scriptures tell us in the book of Hebrews chapter two that uh, Jesus was made perfect through suffering. So just as it was for him, so also even more so for us. As we trust God in the midst of pain and suffering in our life, God uses these very things to redirect us, to get our attention, to bring us to repentance, to get us to grow. Now, let's be honest. None of us want to hear this. Um, We want to be victory Christians. Yeehaw. We want to avoid tribulations. We want to bypass persecutions. We want to be healed of all our diseases and sickness. We want to prosper financially. We want to live the good life, the blessed life right here and right now. But that's not the picture of the church in the book of Revelation, friends. The church is battling. The church is struggling. The church is being told to hold on, keep trusting, stay faithful, and you will overcome. Five of the seven churches that we studied back there in chapters two and three were in serious danger of losing their spiritual battles. And that's why Jesus wrote them a letter. He wanted to challenge them. He wanted to encourage them. He wanted them to overcome. And so the obvious question, of course, for us is, how are we doing? Are the struggles we have or the challenges we face or the obstacles we encounter, are they perfecting us? 
is the question. Are they making us more like Jesus? Another way to ask this is, are we growing? Are we repenting of sin when we become aware of it? Or how about asking it this way? Are we making good use of the coronavirus? I gotta be honest. Well, no, I don't gotta be, but I will be. <laughs> um, this virus thing has, has been incredibly tough, exacerbating to me. At first, it was just depressing. <laughs> it was confusing. It was bewildering. Why, God? What, what in the heck is going on? I found myself frustrated. I found myself angered. I found myself feeling like, wow, so much momentum lost and things of that nature. And I just wanted this stinking virus to go away. And I found that the longer it went on, the worse I got until, until I began to pray. I mean, really pray. I had to go back to doing something that I did for many years, but haven't done in recent years, and that's journaling. I had to start writing my thoughts down, my prayer thoughts, my conversation with God to kind of reflect on it with him. And I got to tell you, when I look at those prayers, my prayers started with lament. Why, God? Why this? Why now? What is this going to accomplish? This feels like you're nowhere, God. It feels like you're not here with me and so on. Prayers of lament. Many of the Psalms are like this. Psalm 22 and others. But it was through those prayers that my thinking then began to change. My mindset started to shift. I went from what, Lord? Or, I mean, why, Lord? Why, Lord? Which is lament. To what, Lord? What do you want to do in me? How do you want to work in me? What am I supposed to be learning in this? And I, it was then that I began to, to get some measure of peace. Peace that passes human understanding, that peace that Paul talked about. When I began to ask those kinds of questions, what Lord, instead of why Lord, what Lord do you want to accomplish in me? When I began to examine and look at myself and ask God to, to work in me, I discovered all kinds of darkness in me. Frustration over not being in control. Anger over having to change my plans, adjust my, adjust my wants, or, or give up my comforts. And the point is, this virus unearthed all kinds of ugly stuff in me. Things I needed to repent of, things I needed to let go of, things I needed to surrender to God. All areas where I needed to grow. And so friends, here's the deal. Another question or statement. Let's not let a good plague go to waste. You see, we are all processing the coronavirus and all of its implications. Some people are holding on for dear life. Unfortunately, many have lost their lives. So I'm not making light of this. This is serious life and death stuff. But for the vast majority of us, what we're really processing are the repercussions of trying to manage this virus. Uh, it's loneliness of isolation or loss of income or loss of productivity or loss of connection with family or friends or loss of freedom to travel, to gather, to worship, to work, to buy toilet paper and disinfectants. All massive inconveniences. And you know what? We can respond to all of this with things like anger, uh, frustration, rebellion, resentment, depression, but I would say this, all of those responses 
are very much about me. Me, 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 me. Or we can remember that God is working through this plague. And we can ask God, how do you want to work in me, Lord? How do you want to make me more like you, more like Jesus? That's what I mean when I say, let's not let a good plague go to waste. So here's what I propose we do. I propose that we do what we see the followers of Jesus doing way back then in our text. And friends, what they did is they prayed. Sometimes that was all they could do. Sometimes that might be all we can do, but it's something that really matters and makes a difference. It can make a difference in us. It can make a difference out there. We need to pray. We need to pray prayers uh, for the people around us. We need to pray for people to repent of things in their lives that they need to repent of. We need to pray that people would come to know God and that they would grow spiritually, that they would turn to God. We need to pray for opportunities to serve and to love our neighbors. We need to pray prayers of lament, perhaps, if that's where you are. That's not a wrong place to start. If that's all you've got in you right now, lament, why God, why is this happening? Where are you in this? Then start by praying prayers of lament and see if that doesn't then roll over into prayers eventually of surrender. Pray for God to be at work in you, in your family, in you, in these circumstances that you have to deal with. Pray that you would grow up. Pray that these circumstances would be used by God to perfect you, to mature you as you work at home, as you deal with cooped up kids, as you deal with social distancing and quarantine. And, and I'll tell you, when you think God might be answering your prayers, here's what I want you to do. I want you to share it with us. Share it with us. And here's how. We would love to hear how God is using this time in your life to grow you up. Uh, there is a, a link on the screen there. DeerCreekChurch.com forward slash how God is at work. And this will take you to a place on our website where we invite you to write a paragraph. Here's what God is doing in my life. Here's what I'm learning. Here are things I'm repenting of and be willing to share that with the broader community. Wish we could do it right here with a microphone, but this will be second best. There's a place at our website at this location where you can share what God is doing with you or better do a video and download or upload a video uh, to that site. Uh, a little short video, not a 30 minute video, uh, but a short video. Here's how God is affecting me through these circumstances. Here's how I am growing. I think this would be a huge encouragement to many of us and a way to grow together. So that's what I would challenge you to do. And in light of what we learn in this text, the importance of prayer, in light of the fact that we know God is at work in these awful, evil circumstances, bringing good out of bad, in light of that, let's share with each other what exactly God is doing. And then together, we can give him praise and thanksgiving because we see some little bit of what he's up to. Amen? Amen. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for this 
time to reflect? Would you use it in us? Would you give us perspective from your word? Would you grow us and perfect us and make us more like Jesus? For we ask it in his name. Amen.